Um, let me introduce myself quickly. Some of you might be going, who is this guy? Uh, my name is Mike, and uh, I'm a member here at Fellowship Bible. My family and I uh, attend and worship at the uh, Brentwood campus. We're eight o'clockers over there. And as of last January, I am a recent addition to the elder team uh, here at Fellowship Bible as well. Um, before I jump into my message this morning, I just want to give kind of a quick elder update. I remember uh, when I was sitting in the uh, chairs on Sunday morning, often kind of wondering, you know, what's, what's going on at, at the, you know, among, among the elders? What are, what's being discussed in some of these meetings? What are you guys working through or talking about? Um, we're in the process of, uh, you know, first of all, trying to give a break to some of the folks that have been serving as elders at this church for a very long time. One of the things that's been a priority for us over the last several months is we're trying to identify another group of elders to come join the team to give a rest, quite frankly, to those that have been serving since 2004. Prior to last January, that was the last time a group of elders was brought on at Fellowship Bible. That's 15 years ago. Um, so yes, we have instilled term limits now. We, uh, we do have, I think it's a three-year term that the elders will serve uh, in this new era. Um, but we're looking for some more people to come on board. And in the next few weeks, we're gonna be putting some folks in front of you for you people to look at. These are the people that we've spent time interviewing and, and appealing to the Lord and asking for the Lord to guide us as to who would help serve our body um, in the years ahead. In addition to that, of course, in our elder meetings, we're always working through sort of normal stuff, everything from working on strategy to the 20-year vision, um, things like budgets and so forth. But we also, quite frankly, spend a fair bit of time talking about you. Um, some of you know this, some of you may not, but every week that you get your program, you're able to tear off the bottom part of this uh, card here and submit it um, in the offering. And there's a chance for you to actually submit a prayer request in there. I didn't know this before I was an elder, but... Every single prayer request that's submitted either on the card or online is brought to the elder meeting. And we pray for you by name. Even those that submit it without a name and it's just anonymous, we still pray uh, for every single request that's submitted. Um, and we consider it an honor to appeal before the throne of grace on your behalf. So please do take advantage of that. Okay, Palm Sunday. Let's transition. Uh, Rob Sweet called me and said, Mike, I would like you to preach a sermon. And I said, fantastic. I said, what would you like me to preach on? He said, Palm Sunday. I said, okay, and what's the text? And he said, I don't know, Palm Sunday. <laughs> I'm like, really? You see, normally when Rob Sweet calls me, it goes something like this. He says, Mike, I'd like you to preach from Mark chapter 11, verses nine through 16a. And our church loves expository preaching. We hold it in very high regard, but sometimes it creates really narrow lane markers, if you know what I'm saying. And for the Eric Hoffmans and the Rob Sweets and the Lloyd Shadrachs of the world, those lane markers are plenty wide. But for me, that can feel a little constricting, right? Because inevitably, when you get like Mark 11, verses 9 through 16a, you'll realize the story about Jesus, but you'll be tempted to like, you know, peek over to what John has to say about the exact same story, and you'll find that all the cool stuff about the story is in John. But no, you got to stay here, right? And so uh, for me, it's kind of tough sometimes when I'm given a passage to speak through and to work through in an expository fashion. I love that we value this. I, I love that we have to go through line by line by line, verse by verse, so you can avoid the hard stuff and you can't cherry pick your favorite uh, sections. But for me, when Rob Sweet says, preach, a, you know, preach a, a, a Palm Sunday message, I'm like, yeah, baby, okay. My line markers got a little wider this morning. 
And so I decided, okay, with all this freedom I've been given, how are we going to exploit it? How are we going to make good use of this? And what I did in preparation for today is I decided, okay, I'm going to read every single version of Palm Sunday that's found in the Gospels. You know what I found out? This is only the second event in the life of Jesus that all four gospel authors record. It's only the second one. The first one is the feeding of the 5,000, and this is only the second event in the life and ministry of Jesus that all four authors record. And I looked at that and said, hmm, that's interesting. And as I was going through reading the different versions of this, I thought, okay, what do I want to say to these people that'll be interesting on Palm Sunday? And all of a sudden, it hit me like deer in the headlights. How many of you have heard a Palm Sunday message before? Raise your hand nice and high. How many of you have heard 15 Palm Sunday messages before? Therein lies my challenge, right? I'm going, oh man, what do I say to, uh, to a group of people that have heard the Palm Sunday message over and over and over again? There's probably some of you in here that could tell the Palm Sunday story better than I could. We all know it, right? Jesus talks to his disciples Guys, we're gonna go into Jerusalem. I'm gonna need a donkey. Hey, can you go get a donkey? You're gonna find it at this place. Tell the guy this. Say, the master needs the donkey. The master's gonna say this. You're gonna say this. He's gonna give you the donkey. I'm gonna ride into Jerusalem, right? And people are gonna lay down their coats. They're gonna wave palm branches. They're gonna shout Hosanna. We all know the story of Palm Sunday, right? When I was looking at the four different versions of the Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I thought, you know what? I wanna look for something that's different. I want to look for something that may not be the standard Palm Sunday address. And I was looking for all, the, through all four different accounts, I was looking for contrast. What sticks out as different that maybe even I didn't feel like I really saw before. And I found like, felt like I found something. And we're going to spend time on that today. Now, before we get into the text, I want to spend a little bit of time creating kind of a backdrop. I want you to understand what's going on context-wise in Jerusalem at the time of Palm Sunday, right? So first thing you need to know about Jerusalem at the time of Jesus in this specific week that we're going to look at today, that Jerusalem as a city is going to literally overflow this week. In fact, historians will tell you that Jerusalem will literally bubble up to be roughly 10 times its normal population on this specific week. Why? They're celebrating a festival. What is the event that they're celebrating this week in Jerusalem? Passover. The Jews in Jerusalem are coming to the city to celebrate the event called Passover. What on earth is Passover? Well, let me give you a little bit of a backdrop here to understand Passover. Roughly 1,500 years prior to Christ, the Jews are enslaved in Egypt. And there's a man named Pharaoh who kind of has his foot on the throats of the Egyptians. He's enslaved them, and they're enduring very, very hard persecution, hard labor. It's an extremely difficult time in Egypt at this time. And throughout their plight, throughout their hardship, the cry on the mouths of the Jews while they're enslaved in Egypt is, save us, free us, God, have mercy, save us. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word is for save us? It's Hosanna. It's Hosanna. That word would have been on the lips of every Jew in Egypt during their time of enslavement under Pharaoh. And as you know from the book of Exodus, God would hear their prayer and he would send a deliverer. God would intervene in their situation and he would send a man named Moses who would come and be a rescuer. He would be a, a type of a savior to his people. 
And he would uh, bring, through the hand of God, he would bring a series of plagues upon the Egyptians, one by one by one, dismantling Pharaoh's grip on the Hebrews, culminating finally in one grand plague called the plague of death. And the only way that the Hebrews could be saved from the plague of death is, is, is if they fell underneath the covering of the blood of the lamb. They would have to paint their doorpost and the, and the lintel of their houses in the blood of a spotless lamb that had been sacrificed. And if they fell underneath the covering of the blood of the lamb, they would be spared death. Now, as we look back on this, we smell a little foreshadowing, don't we? But that is exactly how the Hebrews were saved from their situation. And through this event, through this Passover, as death passed over them, the Jews would be freed. They would uh, achieve, they would inherit their freedom. They would uh, receive or achieve their independence. And they would also step into their land that was promised to them. So they have freedom, they have independence, and now they have land. Okay. Now, through that lens, the Passover, if we want to look at this through the American mindset, Passover is a little bit like our 4th of July, right? Where we overthrew our oppressors, we gained our freedom, we achieved our independence, and we also took our land. Uh, July 4th for us would be a very similar situation, for example, to Passover. And you might be saying, well, that's not a bad analogy, Mike, but you're kind of overreaching. I mean, the Passover celebration in, 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 uh, in Egypt, the Jews were saved by God's divine hand. I mean, the American independence wasn't won by God's divine hand. Well, actually, I would encourage you to read the writings of your founding fathers who very frequently felt like they saw the instance of the divine intervening in their everyday situation. Those lane markers got real wide just now. I'm gonna reel it back in. <laughs> this is not about Americans' independence. But I, uh, I want to share the story of Passover with you for a reason, guys. You need to know that as a nation, during the time of Christ, the Jews are grieving once again. At the time of Jesus, Israel is an occupied state. This land that they're living in, that they were promised, it's no longer theirs. Yeah, they're inhabiting it, but they don't control it, right? And their freedom, their independence that they won... It's kind of a thing of the past. They're living under the political rule of the Romans at this time. So, uh, in fact, to continue the analogy further, their, their modern-day pharaoh is a man named Pilate. So you need to know that in Jerusalem at the time of Christ, it's a bad day right now. And in the eyes of the Jews, we're gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate this week a festival. We're remembering Passover, the time that God freed us from our oppressive enemies. But look around. Are you feeling free if you're in Jerusalem? Are you feeling like celebrating? Come on. Our freedom is gone. Our independence is gone. Our land is being controlled. The cry of Hosanna is once again on the lips of the Jews who are desperately seeking change and deliverance once again. Now, if we want to contextualize this further, I want you to try to just join me for a, uh, a, a way of visualizing this. Picture that America had lost World War II. What would it be like to live in America right now if we lost World War II and we are currently operating under the control of Germany? It was not our flag on the flagpole, it was theirs. 
What would it be like in this country if that was the situation? As I was pondering this, two things came to mind. Number one, if America was currently controlled by the Germans, I think the first thing that would be absolutely certain is that we would have a lot more Volkswagens on the road. How many of you drive a Volkswagen? Can I see your hand? Two of you. This is my point, okay? Volkswagen would have an absolutely entrenched share in the car marketplace, unlike they do right now. No, but secondly, and probably more importantly, I think every time that our calendar rolled around to July the 4th, we'd feel a weight right here. We'd feel a bitterness, almost an anger right here because this holiday is one where we remember and recognize the freedom that we struggled so hard to get. But July 4th, if we were not living in a country that we controlled, that would be a solemn, remembry, a solemn remembrance of the freedom that once was ours but no longer is. And my friends, that's what it's like in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Now, with this as a backdrop, I wanna let you know that in the way that free us, Lord, save us, Lord, to be the cry on our lips if we were under German control today, that is the cry on the lips of the Jews once again in first century Jerusalem, okay? Now, if you're in Jerusalem today, drop yourself in the city at this time, all right? Going through the eastern gate of Jerusalem right now, you see there's a parade. There's a caravan coming through the east gate of Jerusalem. And the guy in front is riding a donkey. His name is Jesus. You've seen him before. You see, Jesus has been in Jerusalem numerous times over the past three years. He's a teacher, right? You've seen him teach in the synagogues. He's even taught at the temple. He's a fascinating teacher. He's unlike the other rabbis that you see in the synagogues. He teaches a little different. He teaches with clarity, unlike you've ever heard before. Conviction, like the words are his, not someone else's. And when he teaches about the kingdom of God and the coming kingdom of heaven, the weird thing, the remarkable thing about this guy is that his teaching is often accompanied by significantly miraculous events. In fact, you saw one time where there was a leper who cried out to Jesus, can you please cleanse me? Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the leper and the leper is immediately cleansed of his disease. There was another time you heard of Jesus who encountered a man who has been blind from birth. Jesus reaches out to the guy he sort of rubs his eyes and all of a sudden the man receives his sight. You've never seen that before. There is another situation where someone who is deaf received his hearing because Jesus touches his ear. Stranger still, there was a time when a man who was controlled by evil spirits, who had demons dwelling within him, comes up to Jesus. Jesus looks at the man, rebukes the spirit in the man, and the spirit flees. Jesus has control over the spiritual realm. But it gets better than that. Just a few weeks ago in Bethany, which is a community just outside the city wall over here, in Bethany, just a few weeks ago, there was a man named Lazarus that died. Get this, he came back to life. He was in the grave for three days when Jesus shows up to his tomb and Jesus simply shouts three words, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus emerges from the tomb after having been dead for three days. This Jesus guy, he's pretty powerful. He is unique. And I'll tell you what, when I'm seeing Jesus coming through the city gate, 
Come on, Jesus. Yeah, king, come on, hail Jesus. I'm gonna lay my coat down for this guy. I'm gonna wave my palm branch for this guy. Heck, if the demons flee this guy, surely the demon of the Roman world is gonna flee Jesus. Pilate's going down to this king. Hosanna, come on, Jesus, yeah. Everyone in Jerusalem is shouting. Bring on Jesus Christ. Bring on this man because he looks like he is the end to our troubles. And the gospel authors, all of them, are recording the scene. If you read all the gospel authors, they've got their metaphorical camera pointing out and they're recording the response of the crowd. And the crowd is shouting and they're cheering and they're waving palm branches and it's a whole bunch of excitement and anticipation of this coming Jesus. We smell the end to our difficulties. But one of the gospel authors, he has the camera turned around. He has the camera not pointed at the crowd, but he's got the camera pointed at the guy on the donkey. And he records something that will surprise you. I want you to open your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 19 and go to verse 41 if you've got your Bibles with you. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. We're gonna see what Luke has to say about this scene. I'll give you a moment to get there. Luke 19, verse 41 says this, referring to Jesus, it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. I feel like the NSB wording is a little difficult to explain, so let me give you the mic version of this verse. I'll read it again. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, if only you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Guys, Jesus wept looking at Jerusalem. There's only a few times in your Bible where we see Jesus brought to tears. First time is, in, is at a funeral, right? Jesus cries at the funeral of Lazarus, right? He cries when he uh, is at the tomb of Lazarus. We see that he weeps in Gethsemane at the solution of sin, and here we see that Jesus is crying at the error of his nation. Now, commentators are actually quick to point out that the word that's used for Jesus' remorse here, it's a little different than the times where Jesus' tears are recorded in other places in our Bible. The word used for Jesus' remorse here in Luke 19 is a word called kaleo. It's a word that uh, it, it implies significant, uncontrolled grief. It implies wailing. Jesus is beside himself with grief as he is approaching the city that's greeting him, waving palm branches. If that doesn't suggest contrast to you, I don't know what does. My friends, Jesus is not enjoying his own party. What is with that? He's not celebrating the way that everyone else is. Well, if you read slightly further ahead in Luke 19 to verse 44, you get a glimpse as to why. It says that Jesus knows that uh, the people of Jerusalem would not recognize the time of their visitation. My friends, God had visited Jerusalem in Jesus. He came to his own, but his own would receive him not. Now, they're waving palm branches right now, but as was said earlier this morning, that's gonna change very quickly. You see, the stone that the builders would look at, they would reject and will soon throw on the ash heap of Golgotha. That's what Jesus knows is coming. 
Jesus is weeping because the people of Jerusalem, they want change, but they want political change. They want military change. They want economic change, but nobody wants to repent. They're looking for the wrong kind of deliverer. My friends, the people in Jerusalem, they're wanting a five-star general. They're wanting an economist. They're wanting a politician, but nobody wants what's needed, and that is to be rescued from their sin. And much like a parent who has to watch a foolish child making a decision that they will regret, Jesus is mourning a city that is about to seal its fate. You see, in Jerusalem, these people had no excuse. They had the writings of the prophets from hundreds and hundreds of years that would describe the coming Messiah. They would see Jesus in his mystery performing many miraculous feats, attesting to his approval by God. Some of these miraculous events, some of these things that Jesus did were actually uh, predicted in the Old Testament prophets as being fulfilled by the Messiah himself. The Jews in Jerusalem had continued evidence that God was active in the life and ministry of Jesus. And despite all of this evidence, they will reject him. They will refuse to accept God's Messiah. And those voices that are shouting Hosanna today, in five days time, they're gonna be shouting something different. What are they gonna be shouting on Friday? Same voices are gonna be shouting crucify him. Very fickle crowd. And they would have to live, my friends, with the consequences of their rejection. I want to make this very clear this morning, my friends. One thing awaits the people of Jerusalem for their rejection of Jesus. Judgment. Judgment awaits those who reject Jesus. Hear me on this. I want to be black and white clear this morning. God will bring judgment to those who reject God's son. And you might be thinking to yourself, wow, that got serious pretty fast this morning. No longer a really uplifting Palm Sunday message. What's going on here today? My friends, there's a hard truth in the gospel story that I don't want to sidestep today. I don't want to sugarcoat it. I don't want to water it down. I don't want to avoid it. I want to confront it head on with you this morning because I feel like that's the way to be honest to the text. I think the fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven is probably for most the hardest part of the gospel story to swallow. I think for anyone outside the church to hear the claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven, Jesus is the only means of salvation, to most people that claim, it kind of feels icky. It feels too exclusivist, too bigoted too narrow-minded, too elitist. Who are you to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Why, why can't I pick my own way to heaven, right? In a culture that we live in today that values tolerance, values free choice, uh, we've got so many options in front of us and so much freedom we're given. I mean, for Pete's sake, we can pick our gender today. What do you mean I can't pick my path to heaven? Come on, church. Guys, there's this is probably, in fact, no, I would say this certainly is the most offensive part of the gospel right. is the claim that we have to say clearly that Jesus is the only way. And I know in our culture today, 
that's offensive. And the Bible concedes it's offensive. Uh, Peter himself said that Jesus is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But I want to look at this with you this morning because I feel it's the right thing for us to do. The first thing I want to explore with you is, does the Bible actually even teach this? Does the Bible say that Jesus is it? Well, let's take a look at that. You don't have to turn with me if you want to. I'll be happy for you to write down chapter and verse, but I'm going to move a little quickly through this, but I want to take my time to develop my point clearly. Question one is, does the Bible in fact teach that Jesus is the only way? Well, roughly a year ago in this room, we were teaching in the book of Acts, and we call this sermon series Plan A. I want to first look at a, a sermon that uh, Peter preached to a group of Jews. We're going to go to Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read a verses 11 and verse 12 to you. But in the sermon that Peter is uh, teaching to a, a group of Jews, he says this, and he's referring to Jesus when he says it. Peter says of Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. That's Peter. Paul says something similar. If you go to 1 Timothy 2, chapter 5, or, sorry, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, uh, Paul says this. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. And then John says this. He says it in red letter words. So it's actually Jesus quoting. Uh, Jesus that's being quoted here. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. You guys, the Bible very clearly teaches that there is no plan B. There is no plan C. Jesus is it. It's his way or no way to heaven. But why is that the case? Why is that the case? Well, my friends, I want to try to understand why this is the situation. It's not just because we, we like Christianity the best or because we're Jesus fans. There's actually a reason for this, right? To say that Jesus is the solution, we have to first understand the problem. And what is the problem? My friends, all of mankind, we are conscious of a separation that exists between us and God. We're inherently aware of the fact that there's distance, not just physical, but spiritual between us and a holy God. And we know that because God has emplaced within all of us something that we call a moral law, a standard of conduct, a standard of right and wrong that he's embedded in each of us. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. It doesn't matter if you grew up in Tibet, Timbuktu. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter who you had for parents or what your social influences were. We all have within us embedded a deep sense of right and wrong. We know we're supposed to engage in behaviors this way and not this way. We know we're supposed to do this. We're not supposed to do this. It was not the product of your parents teaching you that. We all know deep within what is right and wrong because God has placed that on all of our hearts. Now, here's the problem. Though we know how we are to behave, we don't do that, right? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says, something appears within me as law, urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong, right? Something is pressing me towards certain behaviors, but none of us behave that way. None of us uphold the standard of conduct that we know to be right, that we know to be true, right? And so for all of us in this room, whether it be this month or this week or more likely this very day, 
we have all failed to adhere to the standard of conduct that we expect from other people, including ourselves. We know what's right in terms of our behavior, but we don't do it, right? We have failed to adhere to our own standard of conduct that we agree with, right? And the result of that is an overwhelming or a very clear sense of guilt. We know that we have behaved in a way that has offended our maker, and I'm firmly of the belief that you don't need to be a Christian. You don't need to be a churchgoer to feel this guilt. Uh, indulge me to take a one-minute tangent with you if I could. I became a believer at 21 years of age. I had never heard the gospel before. I'd never been to church. Well, I'm sorry, never been to a church service. I had been to church twice in my upbringing. That was to watch two cousins get married. Those were the only times I had darkened the door of a church. I never read the Bible, never heard of this Jesus guy. I remember very clearly when I was 20 years old, I was on the roof of a houseboat with some friends. We were having a great time on a long weekend. And for whatever reason, I just became kind of contemplative this particular night. And I was looking back on my life at the things that I had done, the events that I had engaged in, some of the things that I had um, embarked upon. And I gotta tell you, I cried myself to sleep that particular night. Why? I had done enough things in my life that I was so deeply ashamed of that I knew that if God existed, it was gonna be a bad day for me if I had to give an account of my life before God. I had no idea who God was. I had no concept of God. But I knew right here that if I was to die on that day, that it was gonna be a very bad day for me. And this is the perspective of someone who's never heard the gospel and never been to church. I remember what this felt like. I had a deep sense of guilt, and I believe firmly that that's a universal sense. We all are aware that we are at odds with our maker because of the way we have lived our lives. Give you a perspective from someone else from a different continent. I read the biography of Gandhi, right, a Hindu. This is one snippet from his biography. This is fascinating to me. Gandhi says, it is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him whom I know governs my every breath and whose offspring that I am. Get this, I know it is because of the evil passions within me that keep me so far from him, yet I cannot get away from them. Isn't that fascinating? Gandhi is saying it is because of the evil passions in me that keep me so far from him, yet I cannot get away from them. What is Gandhi talking about? what I was talking about, though I didn't have a word for it when I was 20, sin. Isaiah 59.2 says, your sin has separated you from your God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My friends, we are aware of a distance between ourselves and our God because of the way that we have behaved before him. We know that we are inherently at odds with our lawmaker, with our creator. You might say, great, Mike, I got it. So why is Jesus the solution to this? Well, let me explain this to you. Jesus is the solution to this because he is the only person who has ever lived that has never broken the moral law. He is the only person who has never stepped outside the lines of what proper right conduct is. He has never once engaged in any behavior, any action, any thought for which he need be ashamed. And you might say, well, that's fascinating, Mike, but how does that help me? Simple. Jesus offers to you his perfection. He offers to you uh, to take upon your, he'll take your sins upon himself. He offers to you his perfection in an exchange. Why? Because he is willing to pay the price for you to be restored to a holy God. 
He is willing to pay the price for you to do that. In this glorious exchange where he takes your sin upon himself and you receive his sinlessness, in that glorious exchange, Jesus breaks the curse of Adam, our very first ancestor. Romans 5.19 says this. It says, just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. My friends, in this glorious exchange, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You might say, Jesus is the only way? Yeah. Well, why can Muhammad not save me? Why can Buddha not save me? Why can uh, Confucius not save me? Why, if I'm a Mormon, why can Joseph Smith not save me? Simply this, my friends. They can't solve the problem of sin. All the founders of these other religions, they had their own sins to pay for. Where, where is Buddha right now? Where is um, Confucius right now? Where is Muhammad right now? They're in their graves. You know why they're there? Because the wages of sin is death. Death is evidence of our sin. These people, these founders of other religious faiths, they're still in the grave. Why? Because they have their own sins to pay for. They've got no resources to help you pay for your sins. They don't have the means to settle the debt. Jesus is the only person who has the resources to help get you out of your situation. He's the only one. And he's proven that he's able to do this because he is no longer in the grave. His sinlessness pulled him out of the grave and that is evidence for us and verification and validation for us that he can make good on the claim that he can restore us from our separation from God. He's the only person, my friends, that can do it. He's the only one that can make the claim because he is the only one who has lived a perfectly sinless life. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know your story. Some of you have probably been coming to church for many, many years and you've got this whole uh, Christianity thing figured out and that's great. But I suspect there's a handful of you in this room this morning. Maybe you're new to Fellowship Bible. Maybe you've been coming in and going out and coming in and going out and you haven't yet made a decision for Jesus. I wanna encourage you this morning to approach the decision for Jesus with the proper amount of reverence that's appropriate to it. You see, the people in Jerusalem this fateful morning, they had a decision to make. They could either choose for Jesus or they could choose against Jesus. They had received their visitation and it was time for them to make a choice. My friends, in the same way, it's time for you to make a choice as well. You see, if you choose for Jesus and you decide to receive him as Savior and make him Lord of your life, he will pay the price for your sins so that you don't have to pay for them yourself. And by the way, that's the simple equation. If you receive Christ, he will pay your debt for you. If you reject Christ, then it's, it's a free offer. You can reject him, but then you have to pay for your sins yourself. But it's up to you. It's a free gift. And I would encourage you to think a little bit counterculturally on this question because so many people in America today, we approach religion at kind of the hobbyist level. 
right? We think of this kind of casually and, and we think, man, choosing your religion, it's kind of like choosing an ice cream, you know? Maybe when I'm going to Kroger this afternoon, I'm thinking about getting some ice cream. Maybe I'll look at Haagen-Dazs today or, man, I don't know, maybe today's a Ben and Jerry's day. Maybe I'm looking at Bluebell. And I, I, maybe I'll just choose a religion for me based on how I, how I want to feel after I taste it. My friends, choosing a religion is nothing like choosing an ice cream. You need to realize that when we look at the question of Christ, when we look at do we want to choose Jesus or do we want to choose against Jesus, it's very different than choosing an ice cream flavor. If you're approaching a question, if you're approaching a choice to satisfy some subjective taste, then pick whatever you want. That makes sense. Choose whatever ice cream tastes good to you. But when you're trying to choose a religion, and I don't like the word religion, but when you're trying to choose a religion, you approach it to solve an objective problem, not to satisfy a subjective taste. My friends, too many people view Jesus like ice cream, when really we should be thinking about Jesus being more like insulin. He can solve an objective malady, an ailment that all of us have. It's called sin. And he's the only one that offers you the remedy. No one else can give it to you. And that malady is killing every one of us. Jesus offers to you this gift. He offers to you salvation, forgiveness from your sins. But my friends, like any gift, it has to be not only extended to you, but also received for it to be yours. I implore you this morning, if you haven't made a decision for Christ, consider this morning your visitation. Consider this the time where you have heard the truth of Jesus and it's time for you to make a decision. Jesus wept, my friends, because he envisioned the life apart from him that was left for those who would reject him. It brought him to tears. My friends, I hope for us this morning, it would bring us to tears. Because I think all of us in this room, we know people who have not yet made their lives right with Christ that haven't yet found salvation through Jesus. And like Jerusalem, next Sunday, our churches are gonna overflow. People are gonna come here because of tradition. They're gonna come here because they know that they're supposed to be in church on Easter Sunday, also on Christmas. And they're gonna show up because of this event. My friends, I pray for boldness for you this week. I pray for confidence. I pray that you'll have that uncomfortable conversation that you may not even feel like you're ready for but initiate with someone who doesn't yet know Christ because it brings him to tears when people are far from him. And I pray that it would move you to tears this week as well.